Broadcasting live from Cassian Andor's Blade Runner gun, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. We're pretty light on news this week. We kind of had to struggle before recording here to come <laughs> up with stuff. Bit. Starting off with Pill Boy oh, Kiss to the Sky. Eugene Cordero, our, our favorite sweet boy who he said that we would never call by his real name on this show. <laughs> Not if I can help it. Has been promoted to a series regular over at Loki Season 2. I am very jazzed about this. I think this is one step closer to our Kiki Kwan, Eugene Cordero misadventures that we've been clamoring for since last episode. And I, I can only imagine he'll have a couple more funny gags with like incredibly powerful weapons and stuff. Uh, maybe he'll maybe he'll be actually along for the ride. Maybe he'll be the little puppy boy that Loki needs to like keep alive at some point for some reason. I want to see him phase into somewhere on a timeline wielding twin infinity gauntlets <laughs> he saves the day in infinity war he pops out of a portal for a second during infinity war and then he pops back in perfect i'm excited about this i love that our boy is getting work our pill boy is getting work one theodore lasso resident favorite theodore lasso and his cast of colorful richmond afc are they the Greyhounds? What are they? Yes, they are the Greyhounds. We'll be joining FIFA 23, a thing I think which you and I both agree might be the thing to get us to play FIFA. I would never even contemplate it, but as I, I was saying this before we started recording. If they just start injecting like Fortnite-style crossovers like this, I'm I'm in. Like, why not? That's very funny. Kira Knightley I'd... from Bend It Like Beckham. <laughs> yeah, why not? You get uh, Amanda Bynes from that one movie that she's supposed to be playing her twin brother? She's the man, sure. Yeah, exactly. A movie I saw on cable a thousand times for some reason. Will Ferrell from Kicking and Screaming? A movie yes, I haven't seen? A movie I saw every year in grade school growing up for some reason. Yeah, I, I, I'm into that. This is also, I know the, the a lot of modern sports games that I do not touch at all, they have like a a manager mo game mode where you can basically just build your team or like be a coach and like plan matches and train your team or whatever. If there's the Ted Lasso version of that mode, that would be amazing. I would buy the game just for that mode. I need it to have the crowd chant the Roy Kent <laughs> chant every time he scores a goal. Or or wanker over and over again. That's pretty fun. You think? Do you think the AFC Richmond home field will be a playable arena? That'd be pretty sick. That would be, that dope. Would be really fun. I would be very very much into that. And if it's one step closer to a standalone Ted Lasso manage your soccer team game, then I'm I'm all for it. I like that we're pitching games that objectively sound worse <laughs> than FIFA that we would play just what because, oh, the thing we like is on it. Yes, Ooh. dude. Are you kidding Jamie me? Jamie Tart. <laughs> it would be so much fun. Oh, my boy, Samuel Bassania. You have to, like, pay a virtual fine. You have to, like, train Roy Kent to not swear during, uh, <laughs> like, press conferences and stuff. <laughs> Wait, I don't know if you know too much about this Ted Lasso crossover. The characters? I don't know if they're, like, voiced in that game. It's, like, a soccer game. But are they going to, like, do their grunt kicks in, like, they're going to get the character, the actors in for their own characters? It seems like it. At least Jason Sudeikis sounds like recorded voice for Ted. Okay, Because awesome. he's in the trailer and stuff, too. 
like doing vo- voices. Facial capture, the mustache and all. Yeah, mustache and all. They, they've yeah. got just a row of green dots right across his <laughs> top lip. Well, when they update it in a year with lead tasso mode, it's gonna it's gonna melt down. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> it turns into real Fortnite. You gotta like battle people. But speaking of another video game, major piece of video game news here, there was a massive leak, actually the biggest leak in video game production history of the in-progress GTA 6, Grand Theft Auto 6. Pretty pretty crazy. Honestly, everything altogether in this story, there's like a FBI case on it. The person who leaked it was trying to blackmail Rockstar to, to prevent further leaks. The entire source code of the of the game so far was leaked along with footage and screenshots. It's kind of insane, but what do you think on this? I ultimately just feel really bad for all of the devs over at Rockstar, especially because I know that there's been a lot of press lately for them about, like, trying to turn a new leaf about getting rid of Crunch yeah, and all of this uh, stuff, and now it's just somebody's come along and... I can't even imagine how bad morale is over there right now, especially considering how many people that don't seem to understand how video game development works are completely trashing how this game is looking and playing in a very early stage of what they're actually working on. So not only to have all of that really hard work leaked and presumably have you have to go back and re-examine and retread some of that work that you wouldn't have had to otherwise do, but then to have a large vocal contingent of people on the internet just bashing everything you're working on? Yeah, that's gotta be heartbreaking, for real. And all of those people that are doing that, too, are people that have bought GTA V for every console that it's been put out on and have been complaining about progress on GTA Six for years now, and they were gonna start hating on anything, no matter what. If it was a finished trailer, people would have hated on it, and that's that's really sad that now they think they have this logical ammunition that, oh, it looks bad and it looks so rough or whatever, when it is so clearly years and years from being anywhere near finished, and probably at this point, because of this leak, even more years pushed down the line, because they're gonna have to more than likely redo a lot of the code that was leaked. And and I just hope that they're trying to keep their heads up a little bit. I know there's been a big vocal outreach of a lot of other game developers that have been sharing early game footage and trying to prove like, hey, everybody, why don't you shut up and look at how this critically acclaimed game looked, you know, at this stage of development. Like, you give them time. They're artists. They have to work. And... Yeah, it, it is nice to see that people are coming forward about that in a little bit of support. I completely agree. I was going to bring up the same thing if you didn't, Seamus, but I'm glad as our resident control boy that you were able to yes, lock that yes, in. Yes, of course, of course. I'm not a big GTA guy, but that doesn't mean anything for this. You know, it's not like we're reviewing a trailer. Exactly, and same here. I'm not a huge GTA guy either. If anything... You know, the older ones are where I'm at. I am not really following the GTA 6 stuff before this horrible thing happened, but hopefully they can they can just keep trucking, and I, again, it's hopefully it'll be forgotten fairly quickly after this, and they can kind of lock down. I don't even think they've locked down the leaker at this point, the, whoever has this information, and if their threats of releasing more information are even credible. I really hope that gets resolved soon and that Rockstar is able to continue their undisturbed development of this game and that people on the internet shut up. But when when has that happened before, I guess? Oh, never. Come on. But that was our very brief news segment this week. What do you say we head on over to the main segment, Garrett? Let's do it. 
now it's time for Star Noirs, our weekly recap of the Andor Disney Plus series. This week, Andor premiered, starring Diego Luna, the uh, fan favorite. At least I, I liked him. <laughs> I think we both liked him on the show last week when we talked about Rogue One. Cassie and Andor, rebel spy, all around kind of skeevy dude. Mm. We're going to go look back at the origins of this character, see where he came from, going all the way back, as we learned in this episode, to his childhood. This week, we're going to be covering the first three episodes, which all premiered on the same day on Disney+, and I feel like probably could have been one 90-minute pilot, if that's how we still did things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. But Seamus, we've been pretty excited about this show, progressively more so, I think, as we've gone on, especially after covering Rogue One for the podcast last time. So what did you think of these first three episodes? I really liked them, Garrett. I think it was a really interesting start to this show. It's it's a little, well, it's, it's very different than what I had anticipated, having given myself the old media blockout to, to not get anything influenced, my opinion, or get anything spoiled. But I really enjoyed it. I think so far, the origins that you just mentioned of Cassie and both his, you know, way, way back stuff and what we're really starting with in the prime of the show are both incredibly interesting. And it's it's making me care a lot more about Cassie, even though it's just the first three episodes. And we did appreciate him for sure rewatching Rogue One. But we actually did both kind of agree that we cared about him a lot less than a lot of the other characters in Rogue One that were considerably more side characters in a way. But in this show, I am really liking what I'm seeing. I'm really compelled by the scope of the story they're telling so far. I, I know these first three episodes are just gearing up for the even bigger adventure that we're about to get launched into with Cassian here. But so far, the super grounded and lower level stuff that they're hitting with these first three episodes is really doing it for me. I'm very curious to know what you think, because we, we are both very hot off of these episodes. Like you said, they just premiered. So what, what are your thoughts? I completely agree with everything you just said. I had seen a little bit more than you had, because when I saw Rogue One and IMAX, I saw the little teaser before that. So I'd actually seen a scene from episode three previously. I'm just incredibly impressed with how much this feels like an actual prestige television show. As much as we talked about Obi-Wan feeling like it understood how an episode should be paced mm, and that mm. it had more nuanced character moments and things like that. It still felt, for better or worse, like a Star War in that it felt like it was aimed at, at younger mm -hmm. audiences. There was maybe some lack of concrete, definitive world building on screen. You know, the characters didn't feel as fleshed out as they could have that weren't the leads, because it felt mm -hmm, more still mm -hmm. like a one-dimensional story, which I think stories with Jedi seem to trend that way in the Star Wars universe, for better or worse. And that's kind of excluding the books. But Sure, yeah, main mainline movies is what you really mean, right? Yes, exactly. And I think the thing that really stood out to me, which I shouldn't be surprised by, because they brought back Tony Gilroy, who wrote Rogue One to create and write this show. Similarly to Rogue One, I'm in awe of how many characters there are in this ensemble cast that I feel like are really well-defined, really likable, and really engaging just right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty hooked on this show. I, I'm happy that it's week to week because 
if it was a all at once thing, I probably would have binged all the way through it at this point. And I'm I'm ready to get the slow drip on this one because these characters are interesting. I'm already not sure who I'm locking into with characters because even in these first three episodes, there are some unexpected deaths and consequences that I I wasn't sure how they were going to go about it. But now we're, like I said, we're kind of getting into the bigger part of the rebel side of Andor stuff, probably in the future episodes. So I'm, I'm super excited to see more of these characters. This is definitely the most adult of all of the live action Star Wars stuff. I think there are bleaker moments of violence in this series than there are in pretty much anything else. There's one moment towards the beginning of Rogue One involving Cassian that has similar feeling to some of the violence Mm -hmm. in this show, but for all our complaining about in Rogue One last week, how we didn't feel like there was a lot of boots on the ground showing about how the Empire and the power system that they've put in place really disenfranchise and negatively impacts the galaxy, here we have the exact thing that you and I were looking for, which is really boots on the ground, bleak, showing the actual visceral violence that comes about from these messy, very gray area situations that escalate very quickly, because as we'll talk about in spoilers, these first three episodes are not some big, let's fight the Empire gang, or even like the origins of Star Wars Rebels, let's try to get the Empire as off kilter as we can on this one Mm, planet. mm. This is one guy who runs into trouble with not even the Empire, just with local law enforcement, and how the situation escalates from there. Also, there's sex in our Star Wars now, Seamus. Can you believe it? That, like, blew my mind. I mean, it was very tastefully done, and it fit right in with the kind of show that Andor is, but it was... It was shocking to see, to say the least, and, you know, not in a bad way either. It it was just an adult situation with two adult characters in a drama action adventure show. I I thought it was was very weird, but it was was in place. Not to mention the fact that the first scene is in a brothel. (laughs) Yes, it is. Which, I mean, we've seen brothels in Star Wars before. Yeah, that's true. But not, like, red light district, like, window prostitutes, like, beckoning to our main character. Like, that's, it's pretty, that's, that's a lot. We mentioned Blade Runner up top. You and I talked about this a little bit before the show, that there is so much Blade Runner already in this show. And I think that's mostly because this is definitively a neo-noir, I think. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's an excellent position to start our rebellion show in, and I'll be very curious to see how the tone shifts over time. Because when this Cassian prequel was announced, I'm like, how are they ever going to do this show without just retreading the same stuff that they already did with his character in Rogue One? Yeah. Because he goes from... Spoilers for Rogue One. He goes from this guy who will do anything for the rebellion, anything for the cause. He's a cold-hearted killer, even though he is doing it for a purpose, to understanding his own autonomy and valuing the choice to save lives and valuing the choice to spare people and show compassion and mercy. I thought, how is this show going to be any different? And it turns out that this really is them thinking about all of the serialized storytelling aspects in a way that most of these Star Wars shows don't. The Mandalorian is essentially the A-team every week, so (laughs) it doesn't really 
matter all that much character-wise. Not that there aren't overarching things, but it, more or less it's an adventure of the week. Boba Fett, I don't even know what was going on there. Oh, boy. And Kenobi is a movie drawn out over eight episodes yes. or however long that show was. All of those things taken into consideration, this is the Star Wars show that finally feels like it's structured like a television series. Yeah, we're, we're in it, and if, as long as uh, this isn't an old bait-and-switch with how good these first three episodes were, this is far and away the most surprised I've ever been with how ready I am to stay with this show. As long as it goes, I think I think they've struck a little bit of gold here, and I don't want to speak too soon, but it feels like I want to stick with it. I Like you were saying, Kenobi was really good in a lot of different ways, but it really could have been that trilogy of movies that it was kind of taking its DNA from. This feels like the first time a star, a live-action Star Wars television show is going to really go the distance for me. Bar the last couple weeks, you and I were pretty skeptical about the entire idea of this show, and it really mm. does show that anything can be good, and it's all about the execution, and it's all about the talent that you have working behind the scenes. I mean, we've praised... Everybody involved with all of the other Star Wars shows, including Boba Fett. I love Robert Rodriguez, just not for that. Yeah, yeah. I think that these people, though, I mean, Tony Gilroy, Bo Williman, and the other people involved creatively just have an understanding of the story they're telling and the place that it fits into the Star Wars universe and probably a creative freedom that is allotted to them because they're dealing with a slightly more obscure character than somebody like mm -hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobi or Boba right. Fett. yes. I think that this is one of the most competently made Star Wars things and probably, honestly, the best written Star Wars thing in terms of <laughs> the quality of its dialogue and exposition and things like that. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, there's so much emotionality in that in the writing that these characters get just in these first three episodes that I'm wondering where this emotionality was in all of the other things, but that's a mix of how good this cast is and, like you were saying, just the writing being spot on. I imagine they had some kind of idea about what this backstory was when writing Rogue One, of course, but... I mean, it's alluded the... to somewhat. There are definitely things from that movie that I'm taking very differently now in context. There's a couple very key moments in this that I, from his words in Rogue One, has me thinking that it's only going to get more morally gray as we I, learn more about this stuff, man. I agree. And I think the last thing I'll say, just because this is kind of a spoiler thought, but I don't have much to say spoiler-wise about <laughs> it, and it is relevant to what we're talking about right now, Boba Fett, this is how you do uh, flashback storytelling. Yeah. Oh my god, right? Take a, take a note, other Star Wars people. This is, this is the way. This is the way. And I think it's the way to spoilers. Yeah, I think so, man. There, there's a this, these three episodes are pretty packed with with good stuff. So I like. I think let's get into it. Official spoiler threshold for the first three episodes of Andor. You've been officially warned. Where to start? At the beginning. I, at the beginning. How how about that? The brothel. The shakedown by the two corrupt cops in our in our Blade Runner world. Real dark stuff. I also had to rewind, like, a couple times to be like, did he kill that guy? He just, like, hit him pretty hard. Yeah, but he I guess that's really him, all it. I think, right? Yeah, he headbutts him, but that's really all it takes, I guess, if you hit him hard enough. I thought there was going to be some kind of fake out, but he, I guess he just accidentally killed that guy. The hesitation and regret on his face immediately following oh, that. Yeah. Diego Luna is an excellent actor, 
and I'm really glad to to see him getting a little bit more nuance that I think he didn't get to play with so much in Rogue One. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. And kind of what we were saying earlier about how, like, this origin story to the point where we see him as that cold-blooded killer in Rogue One, the disparity between the second corrupt cop is, like, begging for his life, more or less, and he, he is very torn with his decision, and it's an incredible inciting incident for a show that I did not think was gonna take that route versus his just like no hesitation blast the informant in the stomach and get out of there I'm so excited to see that transition to him whatever Skarsgård is bringing him into here how that makes his hesitation fall how that makes his cold-bloodedness rise in his character before he meets Jyn Erso in Rogue One and I was especially surprised thinking about that transition because in Rogue One he kind of implies to Jin that he's been with the Rebellion since he was a child. Right, yes. Which, I've been in this fight since I was six years old. I mean, in a way that's still true because he has been this disenfranchised guy fucking authority, fighting. We don't know what the origins of that ship is that we see in the flashbacks, but I'm assuming it's some kind of proto-imperial separatist vessel. Based on yeah, so, something the like that, maybe even some kind of imperial mining material transport. They, they had like gas masks on in the wreckage, and it, it almost looked like there was some kind of leak of some kind. Could be that just another symptom of that one shot we see of a young Andor looking out on the strip mining that's going yeah. on on his planet, that, which we later learn is what inevitably destroys the population on that planet. It, it like makes it an unlivable planet after a disaster. But the fact that he starts so kind of uninterested in the rebellion and you have the classic, again, this is why I feel like it should have just been a 90 minute pilot because the end of the third episode is where you get the classic hero's journey refusal of the call to adventure, mm. where he's not interested in any rebellion. He's just trying to keep his head down, make some money, get off planet, get away from this murder rap. And that's very different, Cassian, than the guy who's willing to kill people who are helping the cause at the start mm. of Rogue One mm. because he believes so much in the rebellion. This character feels so consistent while being in such a different place emotionally that it's super compelling, and frankly, the idea that we know where this character ends up almost makes his struggle now and his hesitancy now more engaging. Absolutely, absolutely. And magnifying that end sequence in the third episode there, again, the flashbacks back and forth between his view out of the the like windshield of the of the spaceship he's he's embarking on his life-changing adventures on was just so spectacularly done it was very beautiful it's a very intense flashback of of him and his home and his family and how he inevitably gets off world and he gets kind of kidnapped but I don't really blame Aunt Petunia, but yeah, she does yeah. <laughs> she does kidnap an indigenous child off of that planet take him away yeah. from his family I will say, though, the, the allusion to the man that was in that flashback and the idea that he becomes the adopted father. Yep. Uh, the Blade Runner gun is originally his, I yep, think, in that flashback. I that as well. And even Skarsgård pinching a nerve with him by talking about the death of his, the execution of his father. Getting strung up in the town square, which is 
Again, going back, really, Kenobi also invoked that. Going back to the roots of what Star Wars is all about with World War II and mm, and the mm. American Revolution and the origins in real life and the dirty truths behind these kinds of conflicts. Yeah, I can't wait to see how much darker it gets. I, I can only imagine those flashbacks are going to keep up per episode and we're just going to get more and more of his transition into like regular galactic citizen life versus his more, way more tribal indigenous way of life with his family. We haven't even touched on like the sister stuff that he mentions. and That is super interesting to me. I mean, that's another noir thing of a guy who gets caught up in a mystery that he has a personal stake in, even though he doesn't want to really be involved with this whole CD underworld. There's a very Dickensian aspect to this poor kid who, who doesn't know a lot about the world getting whisked into a mm. grimy, dirty city life of adventure that he wasn't prepared for and didn't really ask for. Yeah, man. Uh, it's going to get wilder once he hits the rebellion later on, once he meets his new best friend, K2SO. And I can only imagine, right? I mean, I guess I could have probably looked at the cast list to see Alan Tudyk. Alan said he's not coming until season two, so. Ah, uh, sad. Which is sad. I'm glad, actually. I'm really into that because B2 emo is best boy honestly he's so great his little shrinking his meek little self his tower on four wheels self is very adorable he is kind of what dio could have been if dio had had a personality beyond just <laughs> I, I i'm a skittish uh, stuttering robot yeah if only but this this b2 or i guess they just call him b yeah B-E. just b he's very cute he has that personality he's in the flashbacks and we get to see him in his non-stuttering prime which i think is also interesting that he gets his, his moment in the sun to see his transition. I like the, the quirkiness of him not really being able to do mission stuff. The calm, the external <laughs> comms bit where they're just like fully talking out loud in a secret message is, is very something. I love what this show has done, which is it harkens back to, you know, the original trilogy, I think, a lot of this universe is super broken and crappy and everything in it mm. is awful. And I love the idea of this just junker droid who barely works and isn't uh, really good for very much he's a companion he's there to he's there to you know tell lies about he's, he's there to make an alibi for Cassian basically. he can only tell two lies though if he goes home and charges up first because his computing yes. process can't tell him to lie unless <laughs> he's fully charged up god bless him I hope he survives this first season and I hope he gets the meat K2 but what I was actually going to say to you before the show is that they are going to make us watch him die a horrible, horrible death that Cassian uh, cannot know. stop. It's going to be arms and legs R2-D2 all over again, <laughs> Garrett. All over again. Uh, oh, quick shout out before I forget. Stairs droid in, in episode two. <laughs> this is pretty Love rad. him. Yeah. Hell yeah. I want a little loose <laughs> logo on the side. Uh, yes. Yes, exactly. Got to be careful of hop-ons. The title sequence of this show, which is using the sun and a planet 2001 style to create the rebel logo. That's insane that no other Star Wars movie has ever done that before. Yeah, I think it looks fantastic. I love these little openings that they still give us the option to skip, even though they're 10 seconds long and actually beautiful. But I'm going to look forward to seeing that every time. You got me thinking about Rebels and stuff, and this is the thing I alluded to before. I had to pause it, and I don't know if it is the exact ship. It just might be the same class of ship 
as the ghost in the parking lot that Andor is in. Really? It's like the third ship down on the right side. I think it's the, it's either the same class of ship or it's supposed to be the ghost. And so I don't know if that timeline lines up at all, but it is just like a parking lot kind of. So I believe that 5BBY, which is explicitly stated that's when this show is yes. set is about the same time that the first season of Rebels is set. So that means that they are super, like, removed from the Rebellion. They're basically just running and doing right, off yeah. all of the little gigs that they do Firefly-style. So I think it's very possible that their work could have taken them to whatever awful system that Cassian's in, but also I think it's probably just a cute little Easter egg. Yeah, probably just a little nod. I do hope that if this show goes long enough, it would be nice to see his maybe involvement in some of the stuff that we see in the early days of the rebellion on rebels because we see a lot of mon mothma on that show oh yeah specifically and this is kind of spoilery for potentially the future of this show considering the fact that we know for a fact that she's going to be a pretty big part of the show despite not being in the first three episodes she gives a speech in rebels that we don't see a lot of where she basically declares that the Empire is abusing its power and that Palpatine is a bad leader and calls for rebellion. And that is when she stops being an Imperial Senator and joins outright the rebellion movement. And then, you know, the ghost crew comes in and kind of deals with the aftermath of that. Right, bodyguard mission, I remember. I would love to see what Cassian's perspective on that was. Does he no Mothma yet when she makes that speech. Is he going to see that? Is it going to help spur him even further into the rebellion and be inspired by it? That would be awesome to see in live action, just like a on-the-ground view of just somebody inspired by that speech. Because we know it inspires so much in the in the greater universe, but to see something like Andor's, to see him get inspired by that would be awesome. That would be really, really cool. Either that or the only other early, early rebellion stuff is like, does he have a mission run in with like a fulcrum before they switch fulcrums around uh, uh, once or twice? The OG fulcrum from... I think it's very possible that we're, we won't spoil who that is, just in case. Of course not, of course. I think it's very possible that the OG Fulcrum from Rebels could show up on this show, considering right? the fact that they're yeah. definitely going to play a role in, in an upcoming Disney Plus show. Yes, they are. I think there's a decent chance that that comes in there. Yeah, that is definitely interesting. But I also kind of like the idea of, for the most part, not involving other characters and kind of leaving this to be more self-contained, because... So far, the only character, period, that is pre-established on this series is Cassian. There is no other character. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we know Mamoth is coming. I'm assuming we're going to see Sagarera. I'm assuming we're going to see Bail Organa at some point. It's really nice yeah, that- Yeah, I, I imagine so. We're getting these new characters and building them out, and I like them a lot. I'm not, cra- I'm not crazy about Skarsgård yet. We'll have to see what his deal is. Dude, I'm waiting for him to whip out that Vibroblade cane that he has hidden away, because he teased that, and I'm, I'm, yeah. as soon as he goes off, I mean, granted, that factory fight was awesome. Did you like that factory fight? I did. I had I had seen it already in IMAX. Oh, that was, so. the, that was the, damn you. Again, it's the dirty, gritty, in the dirt and dust, using the environment that way, and then, like, having the catastrophe of all the chains and weights just, like, collapse on itself in the chaos was awesome it was it was very very fun to watch i I loved it i'm really enjoying bix who is kind of his contact 
to the underworld who seems on the surface to just be this normal mechanic, but obviously has some kind of ties to the rebellion. She seems to be sourcing materials for Skarsgård's sect of the rebellion. That actor, she was on Good Omens, and I really liked her on that too. So right I'm glad on. to see her getting more work as her weird little boyfriend. That ah, uh, that that bastard who got what he deserved. I guess I, I, I it's complicated. That's I like. That I it's know complicated. it's complicated. I really like that he clearly loves her and that is so evident and that's what gets him killed what gets him killed is running right at a guy who's holding a gun to him which i thought was interesting an interesting way to deal with that situation so it's like the cop's not supposed to just shoot you when you run at them right that's not really right there should be (laughs) not that cop did he he did get in trouble he got banished to the ship and then he got exploded (gasps) by oh so exploded um by maybe cassian's friend from the junkyard who tied it the wa- thing to his ship? It was, and I like that. They only imply that. I am so jazzed yes. about how much okay. there is left to just connect dots on your own terms. For for a second, I thought I had missed that explicitly, but I'm I'm glad that I could still, I mean, it was obvious enough where he's sitting at the bar in the aftermath, like, he, he knows he did something. I hope he's back. I'm sure he will be after his little feat there. I really like the fact that he turns Cassian in, not because it's easy and not because it's the right thing to do or whatever or even to save his own skin i like the fact that we're talking about bix's boyfriend now not yeah, the, about the irish boyfriend guy yeah. i like that he's just jealous and he wants cassian gone so he turns him in i want to talk about my pathetic little friend deputy inspector karn my favorite character you mean because yeah. he's incredible yeah that guy's awesome he's like something off of the Wire or The Sopranos or something. It's so crazy to see a character like this in a Star Wars thing because we were just praising how complicated Krennic is and how much he adds a kind of... Because he's never really good, but he is sympathetic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this guy is trying to catch a murderer. Like, that's his motivation. He's being told to sweep a murder of his, like, fellow police officers under the rug, and he's not standing for it. And that's why I was so on board with him right away. And then he takes a mean, bad turn a little bit later in the other two episodes. It's almost like this show... Now, Star Wars isn't political, never has been, and... Oh, absolutely not. I want to make it clear that I would never insinuate that Star Wars would take a political stance on anything. However, it's almost like the show is trying to insinuate... That maybe there is an inherent uh, problematic <laughs> nature to the way that law enforcement operates, and oh uh, yeah, weird, uh, weird how that is. And it, it's almost like there, there, it could be a re- real world analog that it's trying to maybe bring up, especially with his interactions with other characters who seem to have built in prejudices um, and seem trigger happy uh, in general. Yeah, I, I I don't know if they did if they were like trying to write that in on purpose or not, but like I think I'm picking up on the subtleties there. <laughs> yeah, d- the fact that his superior is telling him to cover it up and his subordinate mosque is like crusade that is very quickly brought out of hand when they go to apprehend him on his planet, and it's only going to spiral out from there. I can I can imagine. Deputy Inspector Karn is going to have a spiral of a character in in the rest of these episodes. I think he's going to get more angry and bloodthirsty and obsessed with this as it goes, because 
he is a complex character with a sense, a little bit of a twisted sense of morality because of Absolutely. what he is being told to believe. But he has that drive and passion that is so much more compelling to me than I thought it would be as not the Empire. They're just these corporate police officers who vaguely work for the Empire, who will have like jurisdiction over a few planets. But I'm so taken by that handful of characters that I, I want to see more botched police operations that are, are more than likely going to continue to happen and make this man go crazy. That's what I needed from Rogue One, I think, ultimately. That's what it showed me during this show. I really like that there are lower level, not even Imperial officers, just law enforcement officers Yeah, that we get to know and understand their characters and their complexities, why they're doing what they're doing. Which is something that is never really addressed. We get close with Finn. We get close with Bodhi. As much as we praised Bodhi last week, that was our one complaint, is that we wanted to know more about his time in the Empire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the way they're going to go, but I think you could have Karn go another way and maybe see the error of his ways. I don't think that aligns with the show's political agenda, and I don't think it aligns with the trajectory of that character right now. Mm. But... The very fact that both things are possible and would, I think, be plausible in the world of the show are a testament to exactly how well-written and nuanced this world is. And again, how many characters on the show I'm engaged in, invested in, and want to see how they continue to intersect going forward. What I'm really looking forward to is the constable. He's going to have to come face to face with some Imperial brass, I think, very soon when his boss comes back and is like, hey, what the hell? I told you to cover this up. I'm very much hoping that whatever Imperial person that he has to answer for is going to appreciate his tenacity and like bring him onto a higher rank of the Empire, perhaps as like some kind of inspector, some kind of criminal hunter maybe he's gonna get more power than that very meek and very clearly unsure of themselves character uh, should have and it's gonna exacerbate all of the insanity that he's thinking about with andor just this idea that he seems to be the only guy who has any kind of handle on who andor is and how dangerous he potentially is to the empire and simultaneously he is the thing that escalates and radicalizes Andor into the Rebellion. So his own suspicion of the danger is the very thing that creates it, which is this great little Ouroboros of causation that also might be trying to say something about um, how how maybe criminals are created in contemporary... Anyway... (laughs) I mostly followed that. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. I was thinking about how I feel like so much of what this show is saying in its subtext is stuff that The Last Jedi was trying to say in its text. It's probably going to be better received because of that. And I think that is a thing that really highlights the difference between the tone of this show and the tone of mainline Star Wars movies. Because The Last Jedi, even with as on the nose as a lot of the dialogue is, and you know I love that movie. Of course, of course. That is how... Star Wars is. It's a mythos. It's a legend. It's a fable. And this is a crime drama. Dealing with the consequences of crime. It's so much more human and digestible unlike that like like you're saying that subconscious level where we we're not we don't need to be spoon-fed the regular Star Wars themes. Like we understand what's happening 
and it's written so competently that we don't need those those hammy lines. But also the fact that the themes are so compatible with classic Star Wars and with Episode Eight and everything else mean that this show is very at home in this universe. It is adding to the mythos of Star Wars in a way that I think is very constructive and is very interesting, and I hope that this is a direction that Star Wars media can continue to take in the future, because you know I think that Star Wars is super oversaturated and that we need to be done with it, but if we can figure out ways to explore the galaxy that get away from the characters that we already know so well and get away from the Jedi, Mm. tell different genres of story in a way that's not just the Marvel fanservice-y, like, Ant-Man's a heist movie or whatever. (laughs) Yes, exactly. This just, it falls into place of what it is because it's well done and we don't need that at this point. It's, it's, I, I'm, again, I'm really hoping that it'll, it'll keep it up maybe through however many seasons we can get of this. But I mean, we, we already do know that it is a ticking clock for this character, five year ticking clock specifically. So I don't know how far they can even go with it. So many of the great noirs start with, you know, the hero's dead at the end, but how's he get there and what? <laughs> Very and, true. And what, and what game did it to him? Yeah. <laughs> Jin or so. Star noirs. Star noirs, bro. It, it truly is. Any final thoughts, Seamus, before we move on? Real excited for, for next week's Star Noirs. This show is is reinvigorated me a lot. I think it might start creeping up into best live action Star Wars show very swiftly, so I'm I'm excited to see where that goes. A claim that Seamus has never made on this podcast before. Eh, just once a year when the new one comes out, buddy. <laughs> this week's pop culture reference is the United States versus Paramount Pictures. Over the first 50 years of cinema's history, Hollywood developed a monolithic group of studios that essentially controlled the entire film industry. These studios were known as the Big Five and the Little Three. It was a common practice at this time not only for these studios to produce films, but to own their own chains of movie theaters either outright or through partnership. By 1945, these studios owned 17% of all U.S. movie theaters and pocketed 45% of all domestic film rental revenue. In 1938, the U.S. Department of Justice leveled a lawsuit against one of the big five, Paramount Pictures, and named the other seven studios as part of the suit. The DOJ claimed that the vertical integration of studios owning theaters violated the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. After a lengthy appeals process, the Supreme Court ultimately sided with the DOJ, and ruled that the Big Five could no longer block book shorts and features, a practice which ensured certain studios remained the only films screening. This and other stipulations in the ruling made it virtually impossible for studios to control theaters, contributing to the end of the reign of the studio system, the weakening of the Hayes Code, and the opening of opportunity for the imminent rise of independent cinema. In 2019, the Department of Justice filed a motion to lift the antitrust decrees, believing that the remaining studios from the original case would not be able to rebuild the same kind of monopoly on the industry. Despite protests from the Independent Cinema Alliance and countless independent filmmakers around the country, the motion was granted on August 7, 2020, making the current landscape of film production and distribution just on the other side of the two-year sunset period for theaters and production companies to adjust. Though there was no official Warner warning in today's episode, This reference is relevant today because of the new talks and rumors of NBC Universal potentially acquiring Warner Brothers Discovery. The acquisition by Comcast would not be able to take place until 2024 due to the ongoing merger of Warner and Discovery. 
but the realization of this massive corporate purchase would mean only a handful of major media companies would control the majority of outgoing content. Unlike today, when there's <laughs> one more studio. <laughs> I was just about to say that. It really, it really is just like it's a handful and a little, it's a little less than the handful we have now, but it's a little discouraging, I'll say. Every time that we get one of these new studio acquisitions, or these, I mean, it's bigger than just a studio at this point. It's it's so, so many properties and so much of these companies going to be merging together that it's just only another couple of years until we have, like, one streaming service or the other, and it's going to have everything, and we're never going <laughs> to, they're going to shut down physical distribution, and we're going to be forced by law to subscribe to these these services that they're going to put out. The fact that the courts decided that they didn't believe contemporary studios could recreate the monopoly-like settings of old studios is an insane thought to me. Like, it is currently happening. It, it was happening in 2019 when they were talking about it, you know? It's it's not something that these studios with this newfound amount of freedom, it's going to be a bloodbath. It's just going to be every man for themselves, chop up what you can, buy all the rest. I really hope that the rumors that were going around a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, about Disney being interested in buying AMC aren't true, because then that little dystopia that you were describing of you can go see the movie in the theater, or you could watch it on Disney+, Plus. that is so close to being a reality. Like that Yeah, is... that is a 30-day window on Disney+, Plus away from being the reality, you know? It's so, it's it's not great. Honestly, I think there are a lot of things that we just cursorily mentioned in this pop culture reference that could be references of their own. We could talk about the Big Five and Little Three. We could talk about the Hayes Code. It touches all different parts of film history and the history of American industry as a whole. This is just going to continue to be more and more relevant as the, the studios condense into one company a little bit at a time. I, I will say the, the only silver lining here is that Calling a company Warner Brothers Discovery NBC Universal sounds like a 30 Rock joke, and that's kind of funny, but the reality of it is very sad. Seamus, what do you say we move on to Save the Rex? Let's do it. Save the Rexer! Now it's time to Save the Rex Center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what are you recommending this week? Well, it's uh, it's something that we actually reference on this show quite often because we're both classy gentlemen, but I just finished my most recent rewatch of Frasier. On Frasier Crane Day, thank you very much, I finished that up, September 11th, nothing else is important on that day, of course, and it is. it still, to this day, stands to me, is maybe one of the funniest sitcoms ever produced on, in television history. I think Kelsey Grammer is a talent. I think David Hyde Pierce is absolutely hilarious. Everything about the cast is, is they bounce off each other like nothing else, and I have seen so little cheers that, like, the show of this caliber to stand on its own like it does, it's, it's a testament to this day, 11 seasons of straight gold. Would you like to know a fun fact, Seamus? Are you going to ruin my life like last week when you told me a fun fact about the key to Reserva? <laughs> no. Okay, no, then lay no. it on me. On the third episode of the hit podcast Pop Culture Reference, the main segment of that episode was Joker, and 
co-host Seamus Connolly actually oh, rec-centered Frasier. Well, I'm rec center. It's do- double rec. The rec center is saved, and I'm building an addition onto it with a ping pong table, buddy. Because this show is banging. It's so good, and it's on Peacock. I think they just announced a Blu-ray box of it. They did. I sent you that news article. I am. It comes out like a week after my birthday, and I I'm gonna be asking for nothing else. Of course, it's just the best show. It's maybe the best show. And save for, like, maybe a handful of episodes that are still good but not incredible, it's it's just 10 out of 10 all the way through. The Fraser Crane Memorial Rec Center. Exactly. And in a year uh, when I, f- I rewatch it again, I will come back here, I'll, I'll, I'll rewatch Wings, and I'll watch Cheers, and I'll watch Frasier again, and then I'll come back for a triple rec center. I do love Wings. That's not my rec center, but I do love Wings. Wings, Frasier ended, and then on the, the what to watch next, Wings was there, and I was like, you know, maybe. Wings is amazing. I never watched it all the way through. Tony Shalhoub. But before I just keep rambling about how good Frasier is, what do you got on the rec center this week? I recently watched a film that I had the most visceral reaction to I have had to a movie in years. It's not that it was the scariest or the goriest or the anything else. It's just that the precision of the filmmaking and the premise itself was enough to incite in me a physical reaction where for the entirety of its runtime, my muscles in my body were actually tense. <laughs> like, I felt oh the tension in my whole body. That is David Fincher's Panic Room. From the very first moments of the film, before anything bad happens, before any nefarious people are introduced, I was on edge. I know that maybe doesn't sound like the most fun experience for some of our listeners to have at home, but... To me, any film that can trigger in me that kind of physical reaction is an incredible feat of filmmaking. Like, we go to the movies to to be entertained, uh, to be reborn together. I knew you were going <laughs> to slip into that. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Somehow... Heartbreak, Heartbreak feels good, feels in, good a in a place like this. like this. Yes, of course. Our matching tattoo. I'm going to get the first half of the sentence, and you're going to get the second. Well, Nicole Kidman aside, have you seen this movie, Seamus? I have not. I've heard about it, and I would love to see it from your recommendation here. I, too, am a big fan of a movie that will give me some kind of, like, involuntary physical... Res- I, lo- I love crying in a movie. I love I love when a movie can, like, make me feel sick, if, if, that, if it's that effective. And there are a handful of movies that I've had a similar reaction to where I'm just, like, almost literally gripping my seat... The entire time, I I feel like Uncut Gems comes to mind of just, like, heart palpitations from start to finish, and I love, I love that stuff, dude. Some some people are like, yeah, it, it, you know, it made me feel so tense from start to finish, I could never watch it again, but that is the opposite for me. I am all about that super effective kind of storytelling where you're, you are so literally brought along for the ride that you can't help yourself in, in sensations like that. So I'm I'm down for David Fincher's panic room, dude. It pains me a great deal to say this, and you know you know from experience both talking to me on this show and, and in real life, Jared Leto is regrettably very good in that movie. That is not your fault. He <laughs> sneaks into movies sometimes and kills it, and that is not your fault. I, I am at fault for for appreciating his craft, too. The rest of that cast, Forrest Whitaker, Jodie Foster, like 13-year-old Kristen Stewart. 
Oh, wow. Great time overall. I really recommend it. It's a movie that I have been wanting to see for a long time. It's actually kind of hard to find, so sorry about that, because (laughs) there is no Blu-ray release, and it is available only on streaming in high definition. Well, where is it streaming? I watched it on Stars, but I have seen it on Hulu before. So, I'll check Hulu, because I definitely don't have stars, I don't think. You have my stars, Seamus. So. I have stars, thank God. Okay, I can watch this. Let me double check that it's still on stars. I typed stars into my streaming app. <laughs> Type stars into the star search engine, and you create a black hole. That's what. That's how black holes are made, stars collapsing in on each other. That turned that's out to be a smarter joke. That's funny enough that I'm going to leave that in, actually. That, <laughs> that was, was funnier than I intended it to be, if I'm being honest. I didn't realize how sound that joke was. I'm afraid to say, Shane, that's the funniest <laughs> thing you've ever said on the show. On the show? Maybe. <laughs> but uh, now it's time to end the show. I was about to transition us <laughs> to a segment that doesn't exist. Yes, yes. That Now it is time to end the show, Garrett. Don't worry. We're, we're at the end now. <laughs> if you want to reach the show, you can hit us up on social media at PCR underscore podcast on TikTok, on Twitter, and on Instagram. I never lock down the order of those, so they're random every week. And if you want to reach the show directly, you can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Next week, we will be pre-recording our show because Seamus is out of the country and I'm starting a new job. So look at us. We're we're very busy little boys. Yeah, real so, adult-like. There will be no news next week and Andor will have to do a very special catch-up episode in two weeks. Due to the advent of the new Martin McDonough-directed Colin Farrell and Brenda Gleeson starring Banshees of Insurin, if I'm saying that correctly, you little Irish boy, if you can correct me. <laughs> I'll take your word on it, you semi-Irish boy. It's all true. Now well, it's on the po- it's on the records <laughs> now, you can't get away from it. <laughs> In anticipation of that film, which looks to be pretty good, and I'm excited to watch it and potentially cover it on the show, depending on how the schedule shakes out, we will be covering In Bruges. I am absolutely thrilled. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but it's a banger, man. I I love In Bruges a lot, and I don't even think we've ever really delved into it too much with each other, so it's going to be a very special episode. I completely agree. I don't know if we've ever actually talked about it together other than last week when we decided, oh, let's do In Bruges. Pretty much. I mean, I've been thrilled ever since, man. I'm I'm locked and loaded. I'm ready to go. I'm looking forward to it. We'll see you all next week from from a time warp. Uh, uh, adios, uh, 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 amigos. See, it's like it's like B two, the droid that stutters. Oh, I'm fading myself out again.